Hello, Dave here. Before we get on with this week's podcast, I just wanted to go back to my rant in last week's podcast about Space Center Houston. It dawned on me after it went live that I may have been a little bit unfair to the tour guide who took me around on the VIP tours when I visited earlier this month. I told a story about how they made a mistake about Ed White, and when you place that story in with the rest of my rant and the previous tour story I had, it may have made this tour guide sound like they were incompetent. The two tours I had this month were both incredible and the guide was amazing and the only mistake that I noticed was that Ed White story, which is one of those myths that does commonly get told. The tour guide was a young person who was not working with a script and answered every question from the small group who were on the tour, all who had completely different levels of knowledge going into the tour. As we finished both tours, all of those who went on them were highly complimentary of the guide who really went well beyond what was required in terms of explaining what we were seeing and enabling us to see as much as possible in the time allowed. These tours aren't cheap, but they are extremely worth it if you can afford it. If I didn't have a list as long as my arm of things which I was annoyed at the Space Centre about, all of which was aimed at the management and the board of the centre, then I doubt I would even have mentioned the mistake while reporting my time at Houston Space Centre and I would have instead been singing the praise of the tour guide. Anyway, I just wanted to make this absolutely clear and hope that those who are planning to go to Houston consider doing those VIP tours and give the tour guides the respect they deserve, which I feel I may have fallen short of doing in the last episode. Anyway, on with this week's podcast. Another orbit around the sun has been completed. So this week, we're going to be looking back over what has been a very busy year in the world of spaceflight. And to help us do this, we're joined by space historian and the founder and editor of the website Collect Space, Robert Perlman. What's been your space highlight of 2022? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please do us a flavor and consider joining our Patreon group by heading to patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 122 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 122 of the Space and Things podcast. It seems like yesterday that we recorded our 2021 review with Chelsea, but apparently it's been a whole year. But also, it feels like ages ago. It's one of those weird things, isn't it, when you start looking back at a year? Exactly. It feels like yesterday, but very far away at the same time. Yeah. And yet, so much has happened. To talk about it all, we're joined by Robert Perlman, a journalist and space historian who's founded the wonderful website, Collect Space, which is both a news publication and an online community for space enthusiasts and professionals. Perlman is a Space Camp Hall of Famer who has been a key player in developing space resources online, from his original Ask an Astronaut website to redesigning and expanding the online resources of the National Space Society to developing Buzz Aldrin's first website, he continues to be at the forefront of breaking news and a highly regarded and trusted source within the space community. Absolutely. So let's find out a bit more about Robert, but also look back at this incredible year of spaceflight. Hey, congratulations. This is real good. So Robert, welcome to the Space and Things podcast. So before we get into our end-of-year review Please tell us a bit more about yourself. Where did your love of spaceflight come from? 
And how did you end up creating CollectSpace? Uh, to put a very long story short, my interest in spaceflight started just about uh, as early as I can remember, around six years of age. Just about everyone at that age at some point thinks, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut. And I just didn't ever let go of that. I mean, sometime around that same point, I was thinking paleontologist or optometrist because my dad was an optometrist. But um, space really uh, sort of hooked on to me. I do not know why. Um, I took a local course in astronomy um, at the local Y for kids. And, and then in uh, 1987, they released the movie Space Camp. And I convinced my father throughout the entire movie it had to be a real place. Um, <laughs> so we sat through the credits. And of course, it says filmed on location at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Um, a week later, we had the application. And <laughs> a week later, I was booked to go that August. Um, and I went seven times. Um, oh, wow. And so Space Camp took the dream and made it into a career ambition. Um, I went to college with the full um, thought and process that I was going to tailor my career to become an astronaut, uh, NASA astronaut, and uh, studied um, astronomy and physics as a double major and was pursuing pursuing that when a chronic illness that I had since childhood made it impossible that I'd ever qualify for the astronaut corps. That led me to have somewhat of a life crisis at all of 22 years of age or 23 years of age about what I was going to do. But on the second part of your question, this is sort of where that plays in, is that I, uh, I was in the, in the freshman class at the University of Maryland that got the first allocated disk space for something called a website. And I ended up creating uh, my first site, Space, which was space.com. The URL was not space.com. It was just called space.com. And uh, in fact, the, it, was a UR, it was an acronym that was defined by contest. A physicist at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory came up with the winning answer that space stood for Space Planetary and Astronomical Cyber Experience. And it was a directory to all the different things that about space that's online at that point in time in 1995. And then that split off into a site called Ask an Astronaut, which was the first to allow the public to ask questions and interact with astronauts online, mm -hmm. even before NASA. That sort of put me on the path of creating space websites. I created the first one for Buzz Aldrin. I created um, the online educator's guide for From Earth to the Moon, the HBO miniseries. Wow. And Space Adventures, um, the space tourism company's first website. And around that time, I was getting ready to move, and I had a small space memorabilia collection and decided it was only natural to build a website to catalog it. I was going to register spacememorabilia.com. That was owned by Pete Conrad. <laughs> uh, so I had written down a list of words on a sheet of paper, yellow line paper that had two lists of words on either side, sort of like a Mad Magazine back cover where you had to fold it over to, to see what the alternate image was. It, the paper got folded and I looked down on it and on one side it said collect on the other side it said space perfect I built that site up as a test site and a personal site it was never meant for the public uh about six months in I got an email from someone saying hey we really like this are you going to continue building it and if you can put a message board on it we'll we'll come and, and join wow I have to this day no idea how they found the site this is well before Google well before any type of search engine but I did, and the site started to grow by word of mouth. By the end of that year, we had 100 registered members. By the end of the following year, we had 1,000. Today, we have over 350,000 registered members. 
and a readership online of uh, somewhere between three and four million unique users per month with syndication. That's crazy numbers. All right, I have one follow-up. Tell me about this space memorabilia thing that Pete Conrad had. <laughs> Why did I not know about this? Uh, it's, it's somewhat of a tragic story in that he had registered it. It was in uh, June of 1999. Uh, he and his wife, Nancy, were planning to launch a uh, had actually launched a line of, of space-related products under, um, a, uh, I'm forgetting what it was called, it was something like Space Heroes. But they had a, they had a couple of action figures um, made that were, they had a Pete Conrad action figure, an Alan Bean action figure, nice. they had a pop-up book, um, and they had registered spacememorabilia.com. And I actually had been working with Pete at the time through the National Space Society to organize for that November for the 25th anniversary of or 30th anniversary of Apollo 12. And that next month on the day before I launched collect space, um, Pete was killed in a motorcycle accident. Um, and so that site never came to be space memorabilia. They just let it expire. It got bought up by some URL sitter that wants some ungodly amount of money for it. Um, I think uh, at least that's the last time I checked on it. And, um, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm appreciative of the fact that he owns spacemorabilia.com because today we still cover space memorabilia. We still cover artifacts and collecting. But today I define collect space as we collect the, the, the stories, the people, and the objects related to space exploration. And our major focus is where space exploration crosses over with pop culture. So um, if I had been just spacemorabilia.com, we would have never gotten that larger scope. That's a very, very good point. And now I'm going to be hunting out those Pete Comrade and Alan Bean action figures. <laughs> anyway. A great note on that is that you can get them as their own set of astronauts, but the better set to get is that they were each packaged with a Power Ranger. Yeah, I have that. I have the one with Pete Comrade and the Power Ranger. He's even got a gap tooth. What? Yep. And the Power Ranger has a, uh, has a ray gun, and Pete Conrad has his Hasselblad camera. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was a great juxtaposition of like, okay, we have one guy fighting evil and another guy just standing to the side and filming it. <laughs> they made Alan as well, Alan Bean, and then they made Charlie Duke as the third in the set. And then there was another set coming out just around the time that he died that was canceled that would have extended into the shuttle program with Charlie Walker um, and a few others. We got robbed. We got robbed <laughs> in so many ways. I want to see those. I want a John Young action figure. Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> we could have different eras of John Young as well. Anyway, yes. so Collect Space is uh, is it's a wonderful source for space flight enthusiasts, and I use it all the time. Now, there have been some big space stories this year, which have some of which have crossed over into the mainstream. Have you seen big spikes in traffic this year? And if so, what were the stories that seemed to capture the attention of the public? And do those stories differ from the ones which enthusiasts tend to like? There's definitely a crossover between enthusiasts and what the public likes. The big stories of the year, the biggest story of the year, the, the year that we saw the biggest spikes with are the ones you'd expect. The Artemis mission, uh, yeah. Artemis 1 going to the moon, DART hitting an asteroid, uh, the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope the big successes in space. The International Space Station made news a couple of times this year, uh, crossed over into the public consciousness. You'd hope that it's always in their consciousness, but it's it's not. Um, and so that's where enthusiasts sort of pay more attention. Surprisingly, the discovery of a 
maybe the largest piece of debris from the Space Shuttle Challenger by a History Channel documentary crew looking for downed aircraft related to the Bermuda Triangle, of all things, had a larger resonance than I would have expected. It it reached beyond just space enthusiasts to the general public. Uh, I think that deals with a lot of people remembering where they were on that day in 1986. And there were smaller stories that resonated more with enthusiasts. There were some that we created ourselves. I spent a long time doing a deep dive into the history of when exactly did M&Ms first fly in space. Amazing. And uh, <laughs> and it all came down to it all was inspired by the fact that M&Ms opened at the end of last year. They opened up their, a new flagship store at Disney Springs in Orlando. Right. And inside that store, unique to that store of any of their others in the world, is a display about M&Ms in space. And they actually sold merchandise related to it that said M&Ms in space since 1981. So that got me thinking, you know, well, which flight in 1981? And I started to, and I grabbed at documents and I finally found that NASA for the first 25 missions of the space shuttle actually methodically documented every piece of food that went up and down on the shuttle, how much was eaten, how much was returned, uneaten and eaten. And so we knew exactly how many M&M packages flew on every single mission, whether they were peanut or almond or plain or mint. Wow. And it turned out that M&M's was wrong. And then when I discovered that the exhibit was wrong, that M&M's did not fly until STS-4 in, uh, in 1982, I then went back and looked through M&M's history and found that they had put out advertisements, print advertisements for years saying that they were on the very first space shuttle mission. Oh my God. So I contacted the company, I contacted Mars and said, how did you get this wrong? Um, <laughs> <laughs> through the help of another collector, I found their original press release that they gave out at the STS-4 launch um, saying that this was the first time they were flying in space. So they themselves did promote it at, when it happened. And I think they were a little embarrassed by it. They didn't embrace it as much as I hoped they would. I was kind of hoping they'd, they'd do a whole thing about adjusting the exhibit in uh, and to my knowledge it still says 1981 there but they did stop selling the, the merchandise saying 1981 okay but that's an example of like a really niche story that has a lot of pop culture crossover but resonates more with with uh enthusiasts than it does the general public i think we saw a lot more attention by enthusiasts on on the sad note on who passed away this year of course people pass away every year but we we had some significant losses this year in the space community you saw more attention being placed on some of the details behind the scenes at what was going on at NASA in terms of the future, in terms of the next uh, class of astronaut candidates reporting the first class of ESA astronauts um, being selected since 2009, um, and that including the first, what they're calling a para-astronaut or a disabled astronaut. He has an amputated leg. I think those stories also were more followed by the enthusiasts than they were the public. Is there a story this year that you think has widely gone unnoticed, which you think should be more significant than people would think? You know, I, this this is odd to say because I said it was one of the most followed stories, but in a lot of ways, Artemis One was a lot more subdued than I thought it was going to be. Oh wow! I went to the Cape for the launch attempt for the first and second launch attempt in August, and the feeling at the press site, even though there was a lot of people at the press site, even though there were a lot of people who drove out and parked overnight to watch it, was that there was more enthusiasm for the last space shuttle mission than there was for the first mission going back to the moon, even wow. though there was no people on board. And a lot of us chalked it up to that. No people on board, so the public wasn't paying attention or as much attention as they'd like. One way I gauge it uniquely probably to collect space is that 
I look at what other companies, unrelated companies, try to tie in to NASA's successes. So when we hit the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 in 2019, there were a lot of companies, Budweiser, McDonald's, Krispy Kreme, Lego, they all tied into the anniversary and celebrated in their own way, uh, whether releasing limited edition products or limited edition versions of their products. For the first attempt at Artemis 1, Krispy Kreme did a moon donut that was only available in limited stores and only available that day. So even by the time we actually launched, it wasn't a thing. And no one else tied into the mission. Yeah, there was some crossover with Alexa through Lockheed Martin's Callisto experiment, although Amazon really didn't advertise it. I was kind of expecting to see Amazon commercials about now, you know, now you can control your spacecraft around the moon. We didn't see that. And maybe that was just my assuming, but I would have really expected the first launch of this SLS and the first mission to really take a, a large step to bring humans back to the moon to be a lot bigger than it was. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. In the UK, it actually got a fair amount of coverage by space flight standards. Normally, it's really hard to get anything anywhere, but it actually got a fair amount of coverage over here. I don't, I don't think people were going mad for it, but it at least got the coverage, which which really sometimes doesn't happen on any space story. So um, it yeah. was quite refreshing over here that we at least got something of it um, but you're, you're right I, I feel like there was more excitement in terms of social media and, and actual people on talking about it in this country uh, about the first crewed SpaceX mission the Demo 2 flight uh, there was definitely more people talking about that so hopefully once we get a crew on board that Artemis 2 flight it's going to be super exciting, especially now we've had a successful mission as well like once who knows it was interesting I went back and looked and when I first wrote, what was my very first time writing a specific story about the Artemis One mission, not the Artemis program, but the Artemis One mission, and it was in 2017. So wow. I've been writing about the pro about that one mission for five years before it launched, um, and that may have contributed to it as well. People had heard every aspect of it. I mean, I know that I struggled towards the end to try to find new ways of writing about the same thing I had written about for years. Usually, you have a lot less lead up to a mission. And so you have a lot more to, to, to hype. You have a lot more to reveal. Even on a normal SpaceX mission now, you know, one event that we always cover is the reveal of the zero-G indicator. What doll did they fly with them? And SpaceX is tight-lipped. I never know in advance. So I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat watching, you know, Hawkeye on the, on the video. And then it's a, a race to try to, you know, take clear enough screenshots to be able to then identify what doll it is and then, you know, and then have a story out within an hour. And I see you know, a lot bigger response to those dolls than I did on some of our Artemis stories. Wow. It, it's all relative of when mm. you when you catch them, when, you know, when the launch is, if it's in the middle of the night or if it's, you know, during uh, you know, rush hour traffic when everyone's looking down at their phones. But yeah, it it, it did feel like it, it could have been more. And that in retrospect it probably should have been. As you were talking now, I was thinking, I wonder what kind of coverage the Apollo 4 mission got, for example, the first launch. I know that didn't send yeah. a command module around the moon, but did that capture the public's attention then? Was it front page news? I, I think I do remember Apollo 4 getting the front page of the New York Times. Wow. Not top story, but like it was above there. the folds. Um, and I could go back and check that. But we also have a lot more ways of eating media today than or yeah. obtaining media today than we they did in the 60s. And not just the internet, but 
you know, the different channels that are on the internet in terms of podcasts and websites and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok. And so there's a lot more ways to disseminate this type of information to different audiences. Maybe that dilutes it as well. Absolutely. True. All right. So with JWST, Artemis, and the DART mission being such big stories this year, do you think it's fair to say that it's been a, a good year for NASA and publicly funded spaceflight? Uh, 2021 certainly felt like it was the year of the private company. Uh, do you think a year like this will impact how NASA is perceived? I think NASA did have a very good year in 2022. Everything that it attempted succeeded. And, and on top of which, it succeeded phenomenally. I will be the first to say I was one of the biggest, biggest skeptics when it came to the JWST deployment. Just the fact that we didn't have eyes on it, that we couldn't see what was going on, that it was more likely to go bad because we couldn't proactively act if we saw something starting to unfurl in the wrong direction. Mm. But it all worked. And, and then you have the lesser stories as well, which are just as big as successes, perseverance and curiosity still going on Mars, Juno around Jupiter, New Horizons nearing its next target, uh, and passing the, the farthest body that, that we've ever, uh, passed in as a, as a human, human or man-made object. You know, the Voyager still, I mean, even Voyager 2, which had a problem with it. I think it was Voyager 2, maybe it was Voyager 1, which had a computer problem with it, was solved by them finding the, you know, the old workbooks that they used to, when they <laughs> launched the mission and, and finding out how to fix it, and they fixed it. So to have all these things go right, I think NASA had a really good year. It also reflected the fact that they had full funding for their projects, everything they asked for they got from Congress, and they seemed to be on track for that. I think just today, um, the Senate voted on giving them an omnibus, omnibus bill that um, includes all the funding that they wanted. Amazing. And so I think that may be, you know, going forward, the legacy that NASA gets, that they, they get the funding that they need to pull off these missions. Um, there's no way, shape or form, they're ever going to reach Apollo levels ever again. Um, I wish we used to, I used to work for the National Space Society and I used we used to campaign for 1% of the federal budget, because right now it's, for those who don't know, it's, it's less than one half of 1% of the national budget, the federal budget that NASA receives. In fact, the DOD receives more money for space exploration than NASA does. Wow. And so I've always wanted to see a, a, a NASA administrator push back against Congress and the president and say, we need more money. And I think the last one to do that was James Webb. But I, for the first time, I think we're in a, a really good position across the board there's not a lot of infighting amongst private companies and and public and private space. They seem to be they found the way to work together and and to succeed based on each other's successes. And uh, and that's an important step, too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that, that Collect Space obviously touches into popular culture. So uh, have there been a favorite book that's been released, a documentary or film that's come out over the last 12 months, maybe personally for you and, and perhaps the stuff that's gone down well on the site as well? Documentary-wise, Goodnight Oppie, the story of the opportunity and really Spirit Rovers uh, that came out from Amazon and Amblin Entertainment and had the animation done by ILM uh, was phenomenal. If you asked me that, uh, you know, a story that I knew well already that I would end up crying and needing, you know, tissues at the end of it, 
uh, it was, I wouldn't have guessed it. And a lot of people expressed the same thing. I was really glad to see that movie released. There were some great crossovers on television. I really enjoyed covering Lego Masters in their third season. Their first episode was space-related, and they had a couple astronauts on. Nice. Um, that was fun to cover. Quantum Leap came back on television, and on yeah. the second episode, they went to space. Um, and it turned out, I got to speak to the um, the, the showrunner for that sh- for the show, and it turns out he's a space camp kid. Um, and loves doing space and tries to work in mentions of space camp and and space into every show he does. Amazing. Um, so it was just natural that they did they did it with Quantum Leap. So that was fun to watch. We saw Top Chef very early in the year um, do a, a space food competition with their uh, chef testants, um, with the winner developing a a dish that will be the inspiration for a dish that will fly on a future NASA mission. Book wise, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Apollo Remastered which is just a phenomenal, not just coffee table book, but a phenomenal service to history in terms of taking all these imagery. They basically took all the the most famous images and not so famous images from Apollo and reworked them using the latest scans, but also uh, combining 16 millimeter film to, to extract new images uh, by lay, layering them as you would in astrophotography. So that was phenomenal to see. There were some great books from Roland Miller out about the space shuttle this year. It turns out that there's some there was an upside to COVID shutting down everything. It gave everyone time to write. Yeah, <laughs> we got Fred Hayes coming out with a book um, that was I know highly anticipated. I haven't read it yet, but I'm hearing great things about Space Craze by Margaret Weidekamp at the uh, National Air and Space Museum, documenting how the public sees space exploration through pop culture. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. In toys, Lego released for the first time uh, five different Artemis-related uh, sets. We got a Samantha Cristoforetti Barbie doll. Um, another couple of Barbie dolls went up to the International Space Station. <laughs> they even got Estee Lauder sending makeup to the International Space Station and then marketing a limited edition uh, bottle of that of that night cream. Only a thousand of them created and we had a resurgence of interest in Snoopy in space, thanks to Snoopy being on board Artemis One. Oh, and we got another season of For All Mankind, which is probably, <laughs> I mean, let's forget about just being space related. It's probably the best sci-fi uh, series, if not best drama altogether on television now. I can't wait to see what they do next. I'm hearing from some of the people involved with it that this next season is what the show was sort of pitched to all the actors on from the beginning. Wow. That this was going to be where all this was leading and that's what sold them on all doing it. And so I'm really excited to see what, what we see in, in, uh, in the coming year. Um, although it's been a, a little bit, it's been an interesting journey with uh, the collect space side of things because we focused on for the first couple of seasons, how, they were reinterpreting space history. And so we got to write about, you know, oh, they they have a character named Deke Slayton. He's not the Deke Slayton we know, but here's how he's, how he's similar. By this season, this year, there was very little parallels we could draw to what were actually real. And mm. I told, when we did interviews with the cast for that, told them as much. And I said, yeah, we sort of turned a corner where we're now uh, heading towards um, the future. And uh, the show creator, uh, Ron Moore, had said from the beginning, if Apollo didn't end, this is the story of how we get from Apollo to Star Trek. And yeah. so 
the real question is how close is he going to bring us to the Star Trek? Is it going to turn out we're, we're um, going to see the Enterprise in a future episode? Uh, <laughs> and not just the space shuttle Enterprise. But it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. I just hope we see grouchy old man Ed Baldwin at autograph shows. During the next season and, and talking talking smack about his crewmates or something like that. That would be accurate. Very That's much all. so. <laughs> okay, we'll carry this on in next week's podcast where we'll speak to Robert about what's gonna happen in twenty twenty four. What a great guy. And I loved his insight on this last year. Yes. Robert's really awesome. Um, All I could say is I've known him for years and he's really, truly one of the OGs in space history and on bringing, really bringing it into the internet age, I would say. Probably one of the first people who really brought that stuff online. You know, I mean, there had been news groups and stuff before, but really Collect Space was one of the first places that I can remember really hanging out at you know on the internet as far as okay this is where the space stuff is he's really kind of a a legend in this business so it's really cool to to talk to him and to pick his brain and stuff like that and also it reminded me of how much has happened this year absolutely it's been crazy so i'm I'm gonna add a little bit to what to what was (laughs) spoken about kind of in numbers and facts so at the point we are recording there's still obviously 10 days left of the year but we're recording this pre-christmas because that's the way it is right (laughs) um okay so there have been 181 orbital launch attempts 174 were successful. We've had six failures and one partial failure. That's a lot of flights this year. Yes. We had the first Egyptian and the first Portuguese person in space. We've had the countries of Moldova, Armenia, Uganda, and Zimbabwe all putting their first satellites into orbit. Uh, There have been seven crewed orbital flights carrying 24 people into space. And we've had three suborbital crewed flights carrying 18 people into space. We had the first fully private mission to the International Space Station with Axiom 1. Yep. The Chinese Space Station continues to grow. We had so many things. Obviously, we mentioned Goodnight Oppie, but there was also been, and Quantum Leap, Moonfall, Moonfall came out. <clears throat> uh, less said about yeah. that, better. Apollo 10 and a half came out. Uh, Houston Astros won the World Series. Um, (laughs) there's been a lot going on this year. There there was 14 EVAs in space, 14 spacewalks, one other record. Mark van der Hey reached a goal of 355 days in space in a single mission, which is the most for an American astronaut. I know it's not the, the, the most ever, but that happened this year. So much happened this year. And I want to give a personal shout out to the fact that DART, the DART mission got so much coverage. The Dart mission got so much coverage, and it's the kind of mission that normally wouldn't get much coverage. When Osiris Rex high fived the asteroid, it didn't. We were excited about it, but it didn't seem to connect. This mission connected with people, and I love yes. that it did. It as was well so as cool. Connecting with Diamorphus, yes, yes, <laughs> it connected its fist to Diamorphus. Sorry, <laughs> I love up. that. It's I like love that. Sleep tonight, Emily. <laughs> Seriously though, the the pictures from that, I believe it was imaged from Hubble and um. The web telescope, I believe it was imaged from both those telescopes, the, the collision 
that's crazy to me that we even have pictures and footage of this, in my opinion, because I'm like, that just tells you like how far you know, we've come. How far we've come. Yeah, there's actual imagery of this. And I believe a report just came out that the the energy transfer of dart to diamorphous was like way more than expected. So the the principle of, you know, hey, let's collide something into an asteroid to try to redirect it. Actually it could work. Worked. Yeah, yeah. If we had to do it, we could. We could. Absolutely. I mean, you, you're right, though. The idea of just sending something that far to impact something at the right time, the maths involved in that is crazy. But also something that was so small, so far away in the middle of nowhere can also, you can also point a camera at it from here and pick it up. It's mind boggling, isn't it? It really is. Never scratch your butt in a parking lot (laughs) that because... There may be a camera pointing at it. That's the moral of this whole story. <laughs> and on that note, I think we'll... <laughs> and on that note, he's like, oh my God, are you on drugs? I'm like, no, I'm I'm very tired. But no, seriously though, it does, as you said, it is insane to me that they can train a camera on a target that remote that in far space. away, that small. Yeah, that technology, that kind of technology actually exists. So. Yeah. That is nuts to me. Like, yeah, the picture, when the pictures rolled in, I was like, is this real? Like, and I I know it's real. I'm not a conspiracy person, but it was just, to me, I'm like, it's incredible that we have, we live in a time where this kind of research can be done. You know, you would never think 20, even 20 years ago, this couldn't be done. And that wasn't a long time ago. No, it wasn't. I think it's been one of my favorite years of following spaceflight. Since I, I was a kid, it's been so much cool stuff going on this year. Absolutely. And every week, it seems like there's been something new, you know, yeah. and Artemis is just one small part of it, you know, so it's it's been amazing. So, yeah, yeah I'm really excited about what's coming in the future. But we'll talk about that a little bit more in our next episode. Absolutely. I think that we have to understand that at the deepest possible level, opening the high frontier means making possible and ensuring the survival of the human race. That's it for this week. We hope that you've enjoyed our look back at what was an incredible year. A massive thank you to all those who have supported us throughout this year. Whether you're a casual listener, someone who shares the podcast, a merchandise purchaser, a donator, or one of our Patreon subscribers, we really do thank you all. And of course, we hope that you have a wonderful 2023 and that it brings lots of personal success and health and happiness to you all. And hopefully it will be a year of wonderful space news as well and another 52 episodes of Space and Things. So for one last time this year, don't forget that in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>